0: Jesus, please teach us from your word and help us to live boldly for you and in your victory. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. How many of you are Huskies fans? (laughs) Did you enjoy the roast duck for dinner last night? If you are an Oregon fan, I am sorry, not. And good job in the middle. We're doing a great job moving to the center. Thank you. That helps us just get more people here. Uh, When I was doing my graduate work, doctoral work in literature, uh, everyone knew that I was a Christian, and I was at Stanford, and no one could remember ever in history a Christian being in the doctoral program in literature at Stanford, ever, ever. Like, and just in case you're wondering, Stanford isn't exactly known for being super pro-Christian, right? And one time I was talking to a professor and he said, you know, it's just embarrassing that we let you in. I mean, like, what's a Christian doing here? And then he said, my only comfort is that no university is ever going to hire you. I mean, maybe SMU, but not a real school. Whoa, like back off, dude. Right? But many of you work in a similar environment, Right. You're in a similar place. I talked to a group of high school students who said that even in a Christian school, even in a Christian school, you can feel kind of odd talking about Jesus. It's just taboo. We have friends, coworkers, family members who sneer at our faith. When I told my advisor at Stanford that I was a Christian, he said with pity in his voice, he said, how'd that happen? Like I'd been hit by a truck or something, right? Are you ever sometimes a little embarrassed to have people know that you're a Christian or that you go to church? Do you ever kind of hide the fact, you know, kind of downplayed at school or or at work? Now for me, I don't have a choice, right? Like my career gives me away. (laughs) So whenever I meet someone at a party or at a school event or something like that, they ask what I do and I say I'm a pastor. They usually have one of two responses. Sometimes they'll say, oh, now is that a full-time job? (laughs) No, I only work on Sundays, right? (laughs) And then the second thing that happens is they will literally, they'll just walk away. They'll just walk, they'll find a reason. Oh, look, broccoli at the buffet table. (laughs) See you later, Father, or Reverend, or whatever it is. Well, this fall, we're talking about how we can be resilient people who relentlessly pursue God and his revival of all things. But to be those people, we have to be able to say with the Apostle Paul in this text, I am unashamed of the gospel." Because shame is powerful, right? I mean, we all want to avoid being embarrassed. Because embarrassment is kind of a powerful motivator. A few weeks ago, I mentioned Snapchat in a sermon. And my daughter was horrified. Okay, Because Snapchat is used mostly by high school students and whatnot. My daughter was horrified. She said, that's just the kind of thing old people say when they're trying to be cool. Like, oh man, I, I know what Snapchat is. That's not why I used it. And she said, oh, it's just embarrassing. And then my wife said, yeah, I cringed a little too. So now sometimes, just to bug my daughter, I'll say, are you looking at the chat snap? (laughs) With the definite article to sound extra clueless, right? It's like saying, according to the Google. (laughs) So now I'm embarrassed. You got that way better than they did over there, by the way. (laughs) now I'm kind of embarrassed, right? And I will never say Snapchat in a sermon again. I draw the line at Instagram. (laughs) Embarrassment is a powerful motivator. And we can sometimes feel embarrassed for our faith because let's admit it. Let's be honest. We Christians have a big old PR problem, don't we? Believing in Jesus is seen as anti-intellectual. Even though there are good intellectual reasons for our faith. Every Easter, I list in the bulletin reasons to believe that Jesus' resurrection actually happened. There are many good, solid, intellectual, historical reasons to believe the Bible is reliable. And in the bulletin, I've listed some books that kind of talk about those reasons. And maybe for some of you, your homework might be to read one of those books this, this week Um, or, or, or the Easter, the Easter document with the lists of reasons to believe in the resurrection. That'll be on our website next to this sermon. Maybe for some of you, your homework is to kind of know those things. Many smart people, including scientists like Francis Collins, who headed the G- Human Genome Pro- Project. So, what do you think? Like, maybe he's kind of smart, right? Scientists like him follow Jesus. But. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not dancing no matter what music you put up. <laughs> Are we good? All right, where was I? All right. <laughs> Smart people follow Jesus, but still we are seen as kind of anti-science, bigoted, judgmental people, and in some ways deservedly so, because some of our brothers and sisters in Christ display some of those characteristics. I prefer to think of them as our second cousins in Christ. <laughs> All right. And the media aids and abets it, right? The media has this tendency to scour the country and find the dumbest Christian in America, right? And then put the microphone in front of his face and then take the dumbest 15-second soundbite. And that's what makes the news, right? And and what bugs me about that is I've been interviewed by the media lots of times. So, (laughs) Well, the Apostle Paul faced a similar PR problem when he wrote his letter to Christians in Rome. See, Rome was a very sophisticated city. Long history of scientists and philosophers. They had concrete that could dry underwater. The arch, they had medicine, they had ice cream, right? The emperor would send slaves to run ice down from the Alps, and slaves usually died of exhaustion, but the emperor had his ice cream. Super sophisticated, very, very proud of their scientific and technological achievements. And Christians had a reputation of being unsophisticated, kind of stupid people, or worse, cannibals, because at communion they ate the body and blood of Christ. So into this culture, Paul comes preaching that life has its greatest meaning because of a poor Jewish carpenter from the armpit of the Roman Empire, Judea, who was crucified between two criminals, and still in all, Paul says, I am unashamed of the gospel. Why? How? And what does it tell us about how we can be unashamed? Not obnoxious people pushing our religion on people, not that, when we lived in California, we lived next door to the church where I worked. And so whenever religious groups would come door to door to our house, my wife always had this great line. She'd, she'd, say, she'd say, look, my husband works at that church right there next door. So we're not just talking conversion here. We're talking career change. Like <laughs> work like a charm. They always left, right? So not pushy like that, but unashamed, proud to follow Jesus. How? Well, the first step is we got to know the power of the gospel. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The word gospel means good news. So if talking about Jesus is hard for you, maybe it's because the news you're bringing isn't good. And the Greek there for salvation does not just mean going to heaven when we die. It means the restoration and the renewal of all things right here on earth. That's good news. In his letter to Timothy, Paul says something similar. He says, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. And then he goes on to say that the gospel has power to do two things. So here's some subpoints, okay? Two things. First, he says, Jesus has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. So the first power of the gospel is it transforms people. Jesus makes us holy, not because we've earned it, but because he loves us. And I've seen this over and over again. A man I know in Rwanda whose wife's family killed his family in the genocide but through, imagine what that does to a marriage. Right? But through prayer and fasting and over time, he was able to, Jesus, he felt Jesus take away his anger, Jesus take away his rage, was able to forgive, to reconcile, go on to have a great marriage. I know Eastsiders who have longed for a bigger thing in life, a bigger adventure, and have found it by mentoring kids or by helping the poor in Jesus' name. Prisoners I have met who, when they discover the God who loved them enough to die for them, become model prisoners, leading Bible studies in the jail, asking forgiveness from those they hurt, making restitution for their crimes. Jesus makes sleepy people wake up, lukewarm people warm up, dishonest people fess up, angry people make up, down and out people move up, gossip. For shut up and soldiers for Jesus stand up and no, I am not ashamed of my Lord who can do all of that Paul says I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for the, for the salvation of who? special people, religious people good people, nice people everyone okay, this is scandalous because at the time the religious people of Jesus day thought they were the only ones that could be saved With Jesus, you don't have to be born in the right caste. You don't have to do a lot of religious rituals. You don't even have to be good. You just need to know that you can't get good on your own and reach out to Jesus, however much of him you know, and he will forgive your sins because he died to pay the penalty for them and he will change you. Every other religion says you have to do a lot of good deeds to make up for your bad deeds. Only Jesus, only Jesus says, I love you just the way you are, not as you should be, and I will help you become everything that you can be. I am not ashamed of a Lord who does that. The second power of the gospel is that Jesus brings dead things to life. Paul says Jesus has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. Sin kills everything. Sin can kill a marriage, but Jesus can make it whole again. I've told you dozens of stories of healed marriages. Sin can kill our passion for life. Jesus can rekindle it and give us an adventure Jesus brings dead things back to life. The first step in being part of the fellowship of the unashamed is to know the power of the gospel. The second step is to change the reputation of Jesus. Paul says, I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed. See, he's not embarrassed because it's not Paul he's asking people to follow. It's Jesus. I think sometimes we get embarrassed about our faith because we're worried about how it reflects on us. But if it's Jesus that we point to, then people reject him. They're not rejecting us, they're rejecting him. It's not about us. But what I have found is that when people actually get to know the real Jesus, not the stereotype, but the real Jesus, they actually kind of like him. So we have to change the reputation of Jesus because he's become synonymous with being judgmental or boring or lots of stuff. I remember a colleague of mine in graduate school once said to me, I've always thought that Christians are like circus freaks, but you seem kind of (laughs) normal. Victory, right? (laughs) Like, yes, I'm changing the reputation of Jesus. So maybe your homework this week would be to pray about ways that you can change the reputation of Jesus by those around you, simply by how you live. By doing those things that provoke the question, the answer to which can only be Jesus. The real Jesus who showed grace to and even socialized with white-collar criminals who took from the poor to enrich their own selves, and he transformed them into generous people. He was friends with terrorists who used violence to accomplish their political purposes and taught them to overcome evil with good. He showed grace to prostitutes and thieves. And when they experienced God's love, they left that way of life behind them. Even Roman centurions, agents of a foreign colonial European power that was oppressing, raping, uh, stealing, all kinds of stuff to the Jews, even to them, Jesus showed grace and transformed them. But when fussy religious people got upset about their traditions changing, Jesus blasted them and told them they were on a course straight to hell. I like that guy. He was the first in history to tell people of different races to be reconciled, told his followers to seek justice for the oppressed, advocate for the immigrant, the orphan, the widow, people who have no voice. He comforted the brokenhearted, befriended the lonely. He healed the sick and the lame. He conquered death so that we don't have to be afraid because even when we die, we're going to rise again. And he is coming back someday to dry every tear, mend every broken heart, and make all things new, radical, counterculture, blasting the up and in, empowering the down and out, having no tolerance for religiosity or churchy churchianity but passionately bringing up there down here and he calls his followers to do the same that's my savior that's my lord and of him I am unashamed for I know whom I have believed know the power of the gospel they amen over there so you got the snapchat thing better (laughs) they got the amens down over there so there you go thank you (laughs) Let's, let's create rivalry between the worship services That'll be healthy. (laughs) Know the power of the gospel, change the reputation of Jesus, and finally, to be unashamed, tell your story. See, a lot of times, I think we're embarrassed about our faith because we think what we have to do is argue people into giving assent to a set of theological truth claims. False. That's the enlightenment, which was all about reason and the mind and all that, And, and that's important because there are intellectual reasons to believe in Jesus. But it's so much more than that, it's personal. I remember one of my Stanford students giving his testimony, so Stanford, very intellectual place, and he said what won him to Jesus was not propositional truth but relational truth. And he wrote two plus two equals four on the whiteboard and he said that's propositional truth. And then he drew a cross on the whiteboard and he said that's relational truth. A God who loved me enough to die for me and that's the God I wanna follow. See, all the other gods issue demands, do this, do that, do the other thing, and then maybe, 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 maybe you'll be okay, maybe, but you won't ever really know. But in all of human history, philosophy, and religion, there is only one God who comes to serve, to suffer, and to die for his own creation. His name is Jesus. It is shockingly original. It is a complete outlier, which makes it either either wrong, because nobody else is doing it, or makes it real and true and right, because no human could cook up a story like this. Only God could. So for some of you, maybe your homework this week is to figure out how to talk about Jesus in relational ways. Can I introduce you to the guy who's really changed a lot of my decisions, my heart, who's helped me in times of need? Can I, can I introduce you to my friend? See, the problem with us post-enlightenment Presbyterians, and I put myself there, is we equate spiritual growth with knowing more things. If the pastor just quotes some Greek and a little historical context and throw in some C.S. Lewis, now I've grown. Right? And that, those things are good. Don't get me wrong. Those things are good, and we provide them when they actually make a difference and change how we see the text. But they can also be dangerous because, as the Bible says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Jesus didn't preach for knowledge. You don't see him parsing the Greek. He told stories because they're relational. In today's passage, Paul says, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. We tend to think of that as kind of transactional. Jesus died to pay the price for my sins. Therefore, God forgives me. Transaction, right? But the Greek, so here I'm going to use the Greek because it can be helpful. The construction of the Greek could also be translated more personally, more relationally. God personally righteouses his people, changes them by relating to them. It's relational, not transactional. And that's why I am not ashamed of my Lord who years ago sought me after I had screwed up so badly, ending high school with an abysmal GPA. You could not do that today and get into college. And then I rebelled against my parents, moved to Seattle with my girlfriend. Then that relationship fell apart. Can't think why. I don't know. We were 19, had dead-end jobs. Where did we go wrong? Right? (laughs) So then I started studying and reading about Christianity, not to accept it, but actually to disprove it and to win arguments with my Christian co-workers who I couldn't stand and were always getting on my nerves. But then slowly, against my will, I began to realize it made intellectual sense. It was not only intellectually possible, it was actually probable. And that was important because I didn't want to follow a lie. But what really got me was Jesus' heart of love. I remember one time in this when I'm reading all this stuff, trying to disprove Christianity, I remember watching some terribly unsophisticated made-for-TV Jesus movie. So, you know, like, not Oscar material, right? I mean, like, cheese whiz. It was just so bad, right? And, and at the time, I wore black. I was very sophisticated, you know, studied philosophy. But there I was, sobbing at the idea of a God who loves me so much that he was willing to die for me. I was ashamed of my taste in movies, but unashamed of Jesus. Some of you have heard me tell this before, but many of you haven't heard me tell this, how I finally became a Christian. After a year of this, uh, I finally became a Christian. I was out one night with an atheist friend of mine, and we used to get together and, I don't know, be atheists together. And, and I said to her, I've been reading about these Christians. You wouldn't, you, you wouldn't believe what they believe. I mean, it's worse than we thought. And, and she said, well, tell me. And so I'd tell her some Christian belief, and we'd make fun of it and laugh, ha, ha, ha. But the more I made fun of it, the more interested, she got and she kept saying, Well, tell me more, tell me more, especially about the part the God who loved her and died for her, the relational part. Finally, she said, Well, that sounds good. I think I want to be a Christian. <laughs> and she said, How does that how do you do that? And I said, I don't know. There's a prayer, I don't know. You just you do something. She said, Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. Do you want to do it with me? I said, No, no, well, I'm gonna become a Christian. I said, Fine, go ahead. So she did, right there, without so much of a buy your leave, she just bowed her head, prayed the prayer, boom, she was a Christian, right? I went home that night thinking, well, that was weird. But that night, as I was laying in bed, I said out loud, you know, if I'm gonna go around making Christians, maybe I ought better be one myself. (laughs) So Lord, here's my life. That's my glorious conversion story. It's gotta be the first time in history that two atheists led each other to the Lord. But that is the power of the gospel, and of that I am unashamed. And I am unashamed of what that gospel can do to heal our world. When Paul says in Romans that the gospel reveals a righteousness from God, he is almost certainly drawing on an Old Testament understanding of that term. In the Old Testament understanding, righteousness of God is not just about God's character. It's what God does. He makes right things in this world. So I am unashamed of a gospel that in the first century brought races who had hated each other for centuries, brought them together and taught them to love each other in the name of Jesus. I am unashamed of a gospel that motivated Christians to give away their possessions to help the poor. In a culture where people thought women didn't have souls, Jesus and Christians not only said that they did, but put them in positions of leadership and influence unheard of at the time. I am not ashamed of a gospel that after the fall of Rome sent missional communities of Christians all over pagan Europe to, to talk about Jesus. And they preached the most counterculture message imaginable to warrior cultures, a crucified God. Funny enough, the Vikings were not impressed. They said, well, why would we follow your God? He lost, but the love they saw in Jesus and his people who were caring for their sick and their poor eventually brought all of pagan Europe to Jesus without the use of the sword. Unlike, just for point of comparison, unlike other religions like Islam, which spread almost exclusively through conquest, which parenthetically does not mean Muslims are more violent than anyone else, I'm not saying that, just Point of comparison, unlike that, Christianity twice spread across an entire continent without conquest or the use of the sword. It is not part of our foundational story. You have to go almost a thousand years into the Christian story before you see people doing conquest and violence in the name of Jesus. Now, it did happen, and it was bad. But even at the time, it was condemned by people who were following the real Jesus, not the Jesus the kings made up to justify their violence. And even during the Crusades, Genuine Christ followers, right? The Crusades were not done by Christ followers, done by the state in the name of Jesus. Genuine Christ followers condemned them, argued against them. St. Francis even went on Crusade, not to fight, but to show love to Muslims. I am not ashamed of a gospel that spawned the invention of hospitals and universities that elevated the status of women. Feminism emerged only in countries influenced by Christianity for a reason, because Christianity set the stage for it. Likewise, the scientific method emerged only in countries influenced by Christianity because Christianity posited a knowable universe and a rational God, a God who blesses the life of the mind. That is nothing to be ashamed of. See, when you tell the whole story, not the half-truths that we've been taught or that's in the media, the full story of Jesus and his people, it is inspiring. Whereas slavery has been part of every culture in every place, it was abolished first and most by Christians and in countries where Christian influence prevailed. Because the Bible is against slavery from start to finish. Slavery was condemned throughout the Middle Ages by popes and priests. Now that doesn't excuse the sin of slavery in America, nor those who twisted scripture to justify it. That is inexcusable. But it was Christians who first called it sin because Jesus calls it sin. In fact, you can draw a direct line from the great awakening of the 1740s. Religious revivals of the 1740s brought thousands of people to Christ. You can draw a direct line from there to abolition because in great awakening churches, everyone was equal at the foot of the cross and black people and white people worshiped together in one church. Revival led to abolition. I am not ashamed of a gospel that does that. I am not ashamed at all. And today, Jesus' people working in organizations like International Justice Mission, freeing women and children caught in the sex industry, or in slavery, which still exists, or this church, which is setting people free from poverty through Jubilee Reach, Eastside Academy, Kid Kid Reach, and lots of other programs. Of that gospel, I am not ashamed. And I am not ashamed of the Lord of my life, who when I had messed my life up, something fierce, he sought me and he found me and he healed me and he loved me and he changed me, healed the pain of a divorce, brought me to churches filled with wonderful people who have blessed my life and the life of my family so richly of that Jesus I am not ashamed To paraphrase a contemporary Christian song, if I told you my story, oh man, the sins I've sinned, the mistakes I've made, the ways I hurt people, especially the ones I love, oh, the anger, the lustful thoughts, the judgmentalism, man, if I told you my story, you would hear sin and brokenness, but you would also hear about a love that never gave up and never let go. So if I'm going to speak, I want it to be about him and his grace that is greater than all my sin, where justice was served, but where mercy wins of the kindness of Jesus that draws me in. See, to tell you my story, I'd have to tell you about him. This is my story. This is my song, praising my savior all the day long. And of him, I will boast of him. I will sing for he is the power in this world to make all things new. And of him, I am unashamed. How about you? So Jesus, we are not ashamed of you because you are the power in this world to redeem and restore and heal and make all things new. And thank you for your story that continues today. And Lord, we pray that we be people who reflect who you are, that we do those things that provoke the question, the answer to which can only be Jesus. Lord, help us to live in those ways. Help us to be bold, not obnoxious, but bold, because we are so filled with your love that we just give it away. Thank you that you are a good, good God. All the time you are good. You are good all the time. In your name, Jesus. Amen.